Welcome everybody to the AJ Osborne Show, where we focus on our core tenets, impact, freedom, and progress. Join me and others as we grow through education and discussion. Welcome everybody to the AJ Osborne Podcast. Um, uh, today, we're going to have a great discussion with a uh, uh, I, a bearded brother from Kansas City, Johnny Wolf. How you doing, man? Hey, doing great, AJ. Thanks so much for having me, man. <laughs> yeah, glad you came on. Uh, you know, we, we right when we get on here, um, like two seconds, as people know that listen to the podcast, I, I don't actually spend a lot of time with my guests before the podcast. That's part of it. We're talking, we're learning. I know about them before I decide if they can come on. But I don't have. We don't. We don't plan really anything. I like it to be organic and natural. And so right before we got on, I just asked, "Hey, where are you from?" And he said, "Kansas City." My wife's from Kansas City. We have deals in Kansas City. So, dude, are you from originally from Kansas City? Like, uh, did you move there? Uh, originally from Northern California. I moved to Kansas City about in 2018. Okay. Uh, sort of, I think, jumped the gun on, you know, the mass migration from uh, from the, the coast to the center part of the United States. Yeah. Um, moved to Austin in 2015 and then moved to Kansas City in 2018. Okay, that's awesome. Why Kansas City? Um, personally, I had moved to Austin in 2015. I was like in San Francisco working at like a bank and like, like a high floor and it was cold all the time. And I was figuring I wasn't going to be able to buy a house for like five years. Um, and so I was like, I'm moving to Austin and I did, but, but it was after I had analyzed different migration trends. I, I'm a financial analyst. That's sort of my background data analyst. Um, and so I analyzed a lot of information about, geographic or ge population trends towards Austin, as well as, you know, the age of the population and different uh, trends like that. It chose Austin as like the number one real estate market in the country at the time for appreciation. That was really what I was looking for. So I moved there. When you move there, you can use primary residence loans. So I was able to buy, you know, a large, a lot more real estate than I would have been able to buy, you know, remotely. Uh, the issue with Austin is that cash flow is not super good. Yeah. So. I wanted to, you know, I did the analysis again, looking for basically what I thought would be the best cash flowing market in the United States, according to obviously super subjective based on what, what I, what I had looked at. And yeah. so Kansas City is what I chose. So balancing, so I did that to kind of balance my Austin properties with something that cash flowed because Austin, it costs you to sometimes. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, you know, it's so funny when I'm, we're, we're talking, I've just been having these discussions a lot yet lately because of how the market is. And we are buying in the Midwest. We're buying in Kansas and other areas of the Midwest, right? We're developing in places like Austin, Texas and Phoenix. And so, you know, a lot of people are like, well, what markets are good and bad? What markets would you buy in or not be in and everything? I'm like, that depends. Yeah. And in real estate, that sure. really depends. And I view this a lot as like, you know, when I he hear you, I, I have two types of learning that I always talk about because it's really important for me to put things into context, right? We have static learning and dynamic learning. Static learning is like what you read in a book. Dynamic learning is the practice of those things that you know or you mm. learn while you're doing. And what you're mm. talking about right now, this offset and you moved there and then you learned and then you went over to Kansas City. This is a perfect example of dynamic learning that you were gaining that education. And two, I love the fact that Dude, you did what most people would never flip and do. 
I mean, you're like, I'm going to invest in real estate. I'm picking up, I'm moving to that market. Now I'm moving. Like, that's, I love that. That's incredible that you're just, you're getting done what needs to happen. Um, yeah, and I like, I like that, that learning framework concept. I think that's, and I've never um, put my finger on what that is, but I definitely, you know, we encounter people and I'm sure you do as well, where you could tell they've done a lot of that static learning where they've read a lot of things. They've listened to a lot of podcasts and they're kind of like looking over this chasm and like when you're in it, it a lot of nuance starts to emerge and you start to realize that like exactly like you said, which market works best totally depends on what you're looking for. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's a lot of kind of value in, you know, I always tell folks with their first deal is like, I think time is, is, is probably more valuable getting started than the deal itself days in deal days with properties that you own builds your knowledge in ways that like every bigger pockets podcast over and over again, can't. Right? Yes. And so I think I would always say like, you're not going to hit a home run your first deal, probably <laughs> no matter how much you labor over it. So get a deal, start to learn actively in a real situation. I think the, the, it's really about in 30 years, how are you the richest? It almost would never be that you it, on day one bought the most perfect deal ever. It's usually how many deals could you get in the first five years to learn the most so that in years six through 20, 30, you buy great deals consistently at volume. And that's when you become the multi multi-millionaire versus like the person that kind of squeaks through 30, three deals over 30 years kind of thing. So I love that. Um, when you walk me back through here, when you went to Austin, because that was before, tell me about yep. the deals you were doing. I, I get why you picked this market, right? So you picked mm -hmm. the market for appreciation and everything. Do you still own the assets there or did you sell them? Yeah, I, um, I own two of the three. Um, I sold one to start my company, Homeroom. Um, it was kind of like our initial cash. Um, but yeah, I, the deals that I bought... You know, and this is sort of you know, um, Craig Kulop over in, um, you know, he's an old bigger pockets guy, talks about house hacking. I do think that it's a beautiful strategy and continues to be one of the best for like very early, like cash strapped investors. So the first deal I ever bought in Austin was a duplex, kind of in what's now seen as like a really coveted area, but kind of like on the outskirts of town. Um, the price was 285, it appraised at 315. So I was like, yeah. And I used down payment assistance. So I actually was zero out of pocket, the mythical zero out of pocket deal. So I was able to do that. And then the other deals I bought were single family homes, nicer, but newer. But when I was doing it, I was like, well, if I'm doing it for appreciation, I should buy the most expensive thing that the cash flow will be neutral because appreciation affects a bigger asset more. 10% on 350,000 is more than 10% on, you know, 250,000. So I was always trying to go upstream in terms of value, which is like a very questionable real estate investor strategy, but for me it worked, right? Yeah. Now, what point did you decide to change the market? How long were you in Austin? What point did the market tell you or you decide, "Hey, I need to make changes?" Yeah, it was 2018, um you know, I was holding these expensive assets, my net worth and like mint.com was going up like material every month, which I was super happy about. But the cash flow was like 
negative in one of the properties and I was like, ah, I need to balance this. Otherwise, you know, real estate will always be a lot of work for me. So that was kind of the reason I, I decided to make that change in 2018. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Now, how long have you been in um, Kansas City? Yeah, uh, three years. Three years. All right. And what are you? What types of properties? When you say you know you're looking at cash flowing properties, are you focusing on burst strategies? Or are you focusing on already good? Like, what is your underlying uh, asset type that you're looking for when you're buying into that? Market? Yeah, and, and I have you know I kind of a very unique lens, and you know, homeroom is co-living and like let me kind of just define that really quick and i'm going to walk that back and talk about how i evaluate properties yeah. for myself yes uh co-living is luxury apartment amenities mixed with roommate housing um it, you can kind of google it it's sort of become like this phrase that's more widely known there's been a lot of venture capital investment in it there's been a lot of uh, real estate developer investment in it. i think it was like 3.2 billion in 2019 globally so Co it's become an asset yeah yeah so it's become an asset class and it's definitely a niche asset class, but it's become an asset class in and of itself. It's just like you have a room, you don't have a kitchen and a bathroom and you don't have a kitchen. Everyone shares the kitchen essentially or in the living room. Mm -hmm. So that, so I look at properties for like, what's the maximum rent you can get by renting out by the room with a sort of more comprehensive strategy or an experience for the tenants. And so that's how I did in Austin. I rented out by the room uh, when I came to Kansas City. That's how I did it. So I, I buy MLS properties. I try to get, you know, I try to negotiate hard, try to look at deals pretty hard. But at the end of the day, I'm trying to buy quickly because I know the strategy of renting by the room will get me, you know, 50% more rent than anybody else can get. So I don't need to get a property that's under market value or, or source off market. Yeah. Oh, I, I love that. You know, it's very... It's very similar to our strategy. When people are like, at these evaluations, how do you make it work? And we're like, well, we're going to increase the revenue by so much that what they're selling for at that revenue mark doesn't really apply to us. Now, um, how, do you guys, how do you guys do that? You just like kind of value add yeah, amenities? Or? For us, it's in storage units. It's very operational and revenue marketing, right? We run it like a business. And so we're kicking out. Mm -hmm bad tenants were readjusting rates and all that kind of stuff. So when we do our underwriting, we look at it, what it is today, we focus not really so much on the quality. Like I focus on location, obviously, because it's real estate, but I'm really looking at the revenue. How do gotcha. we increase revenue and what strategies do we use? And I'm that, curious how you, how you, how do you guys, how do you guys peg what the current rent in a, is versus what the rent will be in the future. Do you just do market analysis of other storage units, the high-end ones versus like the chains and then compare it to like, I assume private ones that you're buying? Yeah, so we we, we do a comparison, a spread. One of the other things that we're looking for is there, there are lots of different products in storage. Mm -hmm. like we, I, I, unit sizes, like I've used products, totally different people use them for different reasons. Um, mm -hmm. And that mix up and that product offering to market is usually off. It's usually the storage facilities not even looking at it like that. So they're not maximizing rent where it should be. Mm -hmm. And so they have some units that are priced below what the square foot and rent should be just because it's not marketed. It's not set up right. They're not kicking people out. Um, and we're looking mm -hmm. at the spread in the market from what the market's currently achieving to not. And uh, then if we're going, you know, normally we don't try to go higher than that. But uh, we may bring a higher type of asset quality to that market that we know in regional markets they already get. Um, so mm. that's another strategy we 
use. Got it. Interesting. Yes. I mean, similar to repositioning kind of a multifamily asset. Um, So are you buying like single family homes that Mm -hmm. have like five bedrooms in them? Is that like kind of your goal? Um, yeah, I mean, we, we do anything between three and five, although there are sixes out there, it's just really rare, Yeah, but we will add bedrooms to spaces, right? Okay. So that's sort of, that's sort of our specialty, kind of like you're talking about, you're like, well, that person is making 30% less than they could be making if yes. they reposition or redo the space. Same thing with us. You know, we have a property that we show, we'll show kind of as an example is like, if you rent this property, it's in like a B area right by the bar scene, it's kind of emerging. It's. 250,000 today, but if, and you rent it, zest the real, the rent estimate is like 1500. So terrible cash flow ratio, but with homeroom, we're getting 2650 or with, sorry, with roommate housing, we're getting 2650, right? So now it's like, okay, now we're above the 1% rule. Now there's enough revenue to, to hold the asset for a long time without, you know, and make money from that. So that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of how we think about it too. It really is like, we can get more rent than other people. So we're able to buy better assets than other people. And so that gets you better appreciation potential, a better asset, easier to liquidate later, also gets you more rents, you know? So, so we try to have a touch on all. It's a little wacky though, right? Cause some people are like, you know, roommate housing, that sounds crazy. So, you know, we do have to offer a bit more. It sounds like what you're doing is just improving a, an asset that everybody needs and wants. In our case, we have to kind of tell people about the story of yeah, what co-living is and teach. why. Learning curve yeah. a little. Now, for sure, for sure. are you doing this in more urban, higher density areas, or does it kind of work everywhere? It, yeah, that's we. Um, our theory going in was that it would work everywhere, and a lot of the other players in co-living, and there's a number of, you know, a few companies that have raised over 100 million from venture capital firms that do this approach, um, and but we we go in and we're like this can work everywhere, and because it can work everywhere. We should do it in, you know, we should do it in cash flow properties because now it's suddenly a cool asset play for, for me personally, which is really the initial thought, but like, but now it's for more people. So we were able to do it in, we have a number of houses in Olathe, for example, which uh-huh. your wife is from, Yep. you know, and so that's, Olathe is like kind of a decent like proxy for what we're talking about here, where it's like, no one would say Olathe is a super big city. It's on the edge of a metro. Um, so it's pretty, it works in Shawnee, it works in Gladstone, yep. all these kind of areas all around Blue Springs. So it doesn't have to be like, you know, super dense, super dense. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So maybe not like, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, but at the same time, yeah. the spots you're talking we, we, about, it's not like they're skyscrapers. <laughs> it's, it's suburbs and even some of them, there's pretty rural suburbs. It's like on the fringe. So, yeah. Yeah, we have we have a, we've done like a, a basically a, we've done some analytics that's created a map where areas are like above a thousand people per square mile, and it has net migration positive and incomes above like the fortieth percentile. And then there's a few other things we're looking at, um, and so those areas will will do, and those end up being places that are surprisingly just like you know kind of out there, you know. Yeah, yeah. Now, how has this market? changed i assume when you're at tops of the markets think this strategy works even better like this increasing and rise in prices and everything i'm sure that dramatically helps this entire business model yeah um we're kind of in this weird situation where the value add 
um, guys are the only guys in town that have a shot at hitting anything. Like you, a lot of the, um, there's just not enough housing stock for um, the flipper right now. There's not enough foreclosures. There's just not enough at the bottom of the market for that typical like C class flip to a cash flow. So it's actually, I mean, our model continues to work. So that's, it's pretty cool. We, you know, we, we, we broke records in number of investors buying properties every month this year so far. Um, and it's just because we can continue to still get inventory because we buy on the MLS and we're adding yeah. value at that point. So, you know, and, and I think that's what I like most about the strategy is that the market cycle, and this is how I, I talk a lot about on our investing strategy too. Like, we, people are like, oh, you shouldn't buy deals right now. And I'm like, why? And they're like, oh, it's too expensive. And like, that's only if you're looking at it from one point of view. That's it, right? Because after we get done with our property, it looks really cheap at what we bought it for. So it's this mm. repositioning and changing of value. If you're just taking the value that the market gives you, and that's all you could, all you know or do, then you're right. Huge percentage of the time and huge percentage of areas of the country, you could never buy, like ever, because they'll <laughs> never cash flow. And right. so I, I dislike real estate strategies that are just simply dependent on market timing. Oh, I, I need a really good deal. I need prices to drop, things. And I'm going, it just to me, that's not a strategy. That's no. more of a gambling um, where I, yeah. you should be able to have a real estate strategy that you can deploy in down markets, up markets, sideways markets. Um, that's a strategy, something that you can actually yeah. run a business around and do. And I, I love what you're talking about because in down markets, that means you're just getting houses cheaper and you could get back cheaper houses in higher density, even more urban areas and do mm -hmm. the same thing. You, your cost basis adjust, Right. But the yep. model doesn't doesn't change for you. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's always you know kind of in your spot. You're always exceeding what you can't. You're always making more and positioning it perfectly, so it increases the revenue. Adding you know, and and whenever you're able to increase revenue um, and be the one, maybe be the unique person that can do that then you're going to always be able to find deals because like you said, you're forcing kind of value creation just from your kind of core processes and systems. I definitely, you know, see your point in terms of, we definitely hear people that are like, I think that person probably listened to a podcast from 2012, just before this call, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, we, there's definitely some sound bites floating and that maybe that's one of the negatives of the internet where someone's saying something and it's like, well, I heard that you're supposed to have 15% cash on cash. Otherwise it's a bad deal. And so that kind of like, I don't know, static learning, but even worse, static learning in a dynamic ecosystem, which is what prop real estate has been, especially over the last decade, Yeah, you know, um, and you try to apply that today and we get that a lot. It's like, I ran the numbers. That's not, that doesn't re reach my numbers. Like, well, you know, you can, uh, we, you can forecast appreciation and it's historically high right now. Yeah. Um, and we're, you know, you can, if you have a strategy that gets you more rent, then it can work. And like your ROI is going to push above a lot of other options. Right. And so it's not going to be as volatile as a stock. So it's like, 
maybe it's not what you dreamed of when you heard the the pocket the bigger pockets podcast in 2012 or you know what yeah. you've always done but the question is is it a good deal today is it the best investment vehicle today a lot of times real estate still remains the best vehicle yeah right and so yeah. it just may not be quite as juicy as it was in 2011 you know and so um it's you know yeah. it's, it's important to adapt and re reevaluate with fresh eyes with new kind of benchmarks yeah i couldn't i couldn't agree more i you know i think and two it comes down to also uh, people are really looking for excuses on why they can't or don't do anything. And then they really like justification through the means that if you are doing it, you're dumb or you're going to get burned. Right. And right. the problem with that is, is that's what happened to me in the downturn. I was buying sure. bills in 2009 and 10 and people were like, I wouldn't do that. We're in the middle of a real estate crisis. It's going to drop again. How could you be building right now? Like, what are you thinking? Jeez, didn't you learn anything? Right? Sure. Same thing they're saying today. And I'm like, geez, I haven't 15 years doing this. And it's always been the same. Never, right. We've never had a period where people weren't saying you shouldn't be. Sure. And there weren't two valid reasons why not to. That's the, that's the thing. And that's what confuses people. Like people ask, you know, well, what about the market? I mean, we're at the highest point ever. Can this sure. market continue? No, it can't. No way. And people are like, oh, then why are you buying? And I'm like, because I don't care what the market does. And that's the difference. My business model isn't dependent on the market doing something. For me, appreciation is a cherry on top, right? That's great. Mm -hmm. I'll refinance and take it out tax-free and redeploy it, right? But like you, you're looking at a property and you're changing the revenue structure so all of a sudden your revenue is so much higher that appreciation is forced. You obviously get it when it's done, but really it's the cash flow focus on it. Um, right. And that's how it, it, it comes down. We talked about like knowledge and learning, right? You have static and dynamic. Really, that's how investing is. You have static investing or dynamic investing, right? Sure. And you have static investing. I'll, I'll invest in stocks. If it goes down, I'll buy more. If it goes up, great. You're not doing really anything, um, which too, there's nothing wrong, by the way. I'm not, I'm not at all dissing on this because I also do static investing, right? So, yeah. um, but there's the next that is dynamic investing, which for me, when you're dynamically investing and operating, those changes and everything are much independent. If, if, if prices go up, that means I have more equity that I can capitalize on. If prices go down, that means I have more to buy. Now, obviously... At, there's risk variances that, like, you know, you think about it, right? way more risk today than there was six years ago. But the funny thing about risk is it's only known in hindsight. So I, I, I think every time I think about that, I'm like, well, that's going to always be true. There will always be more risk in six years than there was today. Because in six years, I don't know how the future is going to play out. And when I look back to see if there was more risk, I saw how it played out. And right. that is the problem when you're looking <laughs> at things like that. Because I, you hear people say it all the time, it's the most risk you know, that there's ever been in the market. And you're like, well, it, it, that's true because we don't know what the future is. But yeah. that was true no, 20 I mean, years ago. Yeah, I mean, and I think there, you know, there's some... Um, there's some validity to people being like, this is, you know, the last six months, especially in the single family space. I don't know. Oh, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy. Has it affect, has it, has, have the prices affected you on 
the storage space? Is it oh, absolutely. Like, we, okay. we have storage facilities that are trading at like below what you can buy apartment buildings at. That's ludicrous. That makes no sense at all. There is a complete disconnect from market acquisitions right now and value. Like they're not mm. connected, right? So it's not even that two of those arguments are valid. And that's the problem with it. They are. And so then you really people freeze and they're like, geez, now I really don't know what to do because they're they're correct. There's a right now we don't live in a normal marketplace. Like, you know, I, I like to say we, are, are we we live in a government ran economy. The government pumped nine trillion dollars into the economy. What the economy can do without nine trillion dollars of the government is completely unknown. We have no clue. <laughs> right. Yeah. So. It's it's not that those things aren't valid. They really are. It's the idea that your strategy, though, shouldn't really be dependent on it. Yeah, if it is dependent on it, then, you know, you don't have a sustainable option for investing in real estate, right? And you should probably, and definitely a good idea to find one because yes. I think over time, real estate is a great inflation hedge, right? Yeah. It's a great appreciation potential option. It's a great cash flow option. I actually, we have a junior sales guys. Like I get people on our calls and they say like, why is real estate a good investment? I'm like, well, it's interesting they, that they're asking that on a call with us. Cause that's what we do. But, but you know, really it's like the tax benefits, but it's also like one of the few assets where you can get appreciate, you can get value appreciation. That's pretty aggressive and you can get passive income. That's pretty healthy. Like that's like a bond in a stock fusion. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's pretty cool. Like it's a pretty cool combination. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been zany. It's been zany. We, we saw, we saw 20% appreciation in some properties in Austin, um, you know, I think in March. Um, so that yeah. was pretty, pretty crazy. I, I think the one thing that people ask when they say, well, like, what's the future? I have frankly no idea, but we do in the residential real estate space, like the slow kind of chance of like not enough inventory continues to be a giant like Problem. driving factor. Yeah. And it's gone from being like, kind of like a, a squeal to like a howl yeah. in which we just continue to underbuild for so long. Yeah. Um, the and the amount just, of pent up demand is ridiculous. Ridiculous. And yeah. we've tied and that, that are with kind of like cheap money. Yeah. That makes yeah. demand skyrocket. Right. Yeah. I don't know. And we, you know, we're targeting those, those starter homes for our investors. And that is like the most sought after asset in the world right now. It seems yes. like, you know, cause all the millennials are sort of like, I think it's time to buy a house now. Yep. <laughs> like, Which for the last just, 10 years, they've been saying, like, Oh, no. you shouldn't own a home. You shouldn't own a home. And now yeah. all of those millions of people that have been saying for a decade, you shouldn't own a home now yeah. want to buy one. They're which, kind of like turning which the corner. shows in yeah. investors' mentality to or, or, or buyers' mentality. When they should have been buying, everybody said it was a bad idea and stupid. When we're at the top of a market now, they all want to own a home and they're paying the price for it. And, you know, yeah. when you talk about these market fluctuations, you know, one of the things that about single family homes, though, that I think is, is, is very true, the, the pent up demand isn't going away. So no. even if we have increase in, um, uh, interest rates, there can be a rebalancing act. But the thing about pent up demand is that doesn't take away the fact if we don't have enough units, people still have to rent, people still have to use. So is if it's cash flowing and it makes sense through an investment standpoint and renting, that is not something that is magically going to go away, right? Like no. it, it, before 2008, we were building houses for no demand. 
the demand was coming from investors. They just wanted to own it and flip it. Today, the demand is coming from users. Like, they need homes. We need roofs, and we don't have it. Like, yeah, there's parts of the country. And, too, I, you know, I think about this a lot with single-family homes. The country, we live in a country now that is a tale of two cities. Yeah, part of the country is nothing compared to the other one. You have parts of the country that prices have basically not moved. Now, you have other sections of the country, like Texas and where, like, I live in Idaho and Nashville, where we have cities where prices have driven 47% in a 12-month period of time. The reason mm -hmm. being is we don't have houses for people. Like, we could not, even today, if all the builders went out and built and maxed out, we still couldn't meet the demand. Even for right. um, multifamily housing, we, like, it seems like multifamily is being built anywhere. But you look at the everywhere. But if you look at the stats of where I live, even if every one of the projects were completed, all of them, that are on the docket, they haven't even started, we still don't feel demand. And they're building them everywhere. And when mm. you look at that, that's demand for people to live. So all of a sudden now it's the opposite in some of the parts of the country where we have a housing crisis. People can't live anywhere. It's like people are like, we don't even know where to go. Like, what do we do? They're living mm. with family members. They're living clear out of the city trying to find ways to, you know, even commute. And we, you have other parts of the country where you can still buy a $30,000 home. Which, you know, the reason being is these migration patterns you're talking about in demand. And I think it's really important for investors to now understand very fundamental things with real estate. Supply, demand, rent revenue. But when we talk about inventory, like look at the users. Why are people actually buying these properties? Why are people moving there? What do they need? What are the jobs? How long has this been, trend been going on? You know, if you look at Texas, Nashville, Idaho, some of these other areas that are stupid, um, these are trends that have been going on since the early 2000s and even late 1990s. Now, there's stops and pauses, sure. but overall, they just keep going. And when you look at that, it goes, okay, you, you got to take it back in that broad context and picture. If I look at a market and I say housing prices haven't increased, you have population shrinkage, right? And renters... Uh, what you get per rent hasn't increased in two decades. It's not going to go anywhere. In fact, that trend is going to do anything but reverse. Um, so and if it's if it's stuck and you have inflation coming, right? You just, you're basically the money is becoming more watery. Yes. So, I mean, that's definitely you know that is one of the things that when we when I you know I get on calls kind of with investors that on occasion that are later in our process or um, you know and one of the things that is just so fundamental. And I do think that it gets missed sometimes. It's just really net migration and net and in, in, in income. And population growth and income growth is really what powers housing. Like, yes, you can kind of look at like one times the other equals the total housing market times a percent equals the total housing market. And so when you, so in less, net, and if I would, net, in my opinion, you know, and I'm sure there's strategies that work in every market, but we do not, we, you know, three of the markets that we're focused on had the top, were in the top 10 net migration during COVID, right? Which yes. was just an acceleration of what we've seen over the last kind of five years. And so- Exactly. You're not Acceleration on, is a perfect way to look at those yeah. trends. There's moments yeah. of acceleration and deceleration, but they're not going away. They're not going away and they they got, we saw what it's like if you just pump steroids into it. Yeah. We're, we're going to continue to see what that's like. But I think it's very, you know, 
if you're not buying positive migration, you're not buying income increases, then you, then I don't know what, what you're doing necessarily on the residential side. Um, because, you know, appreciation is a chair on top of the Sunday, but it's a more guaranteed cherry if, if you're doing it in places that migration too is happening. If migration away is happening and the historical trends of the prices, we show this one, we've told this one chart of Kansas City property prices in which the prices have only gone down once in 50 years. And it's just been like this kind of long study and then like went down 10% in 2008 and then continues to go up. So, um, you know, stable population with some growth, okay, but great population it starts to become an appreciation focused asset, which we try to think about in terms of a blended approach, like a, almost like a, a stock portfolio. It's like you have your super elite performance with Nashville, Boise, um, Austin, where and the, the income is going up super fast. We think that there's a very good chance those properties will continue to appreciate very aggressively for a long time. Then you've got your Kansas City's stable, prices are lower, and so your cash flow is a bit better. We think blending those kind of together I, gives you kind of the best like performance. I was literally, that was like what I was gonna get to is a lot of people say, I have to choose. I either have California, which is a no cash flow market, or I have Detroit. That's not <laughs> true. <laughs> there are markets in the United States that have appreciation. They have increase in rent growth, but sure. they're just not stupid booming. They're not Nashville. They're not Boise. They're not Idaho. Or they're so expensive, like yeah. California, where nobody can ever get cash flow, no matter whatever. Um, no matter what and you do. <laughs> that's why, like you, you're in Kansas City. That's why we are. I'm looking at long-term trends, but in areas that there's still value add and I can still buy. Um, so these in-between exactly. markets like you you have like Kansas City and other metro areas that you know Kansas City for me and I don't want to make this a podcast all about Kansas City because I don't want everybody to rush and start buying there and everything obviously but <laughs> a lot of people are shocked by it and particularly yeah. by the growth rates like when I you know when I first went there it was obviously a huge midwestern city um but in mm. our mind out west every midwestern city is dying like, that's just how we believe it happens, right? Like, if you're from California and you're like the Midwest, or if you're from like Idaho, who's experiencing 3% growth rates, yeah, you think that's a Boise norm. is going crazy. Yeah. And we get in a bubble where then you go to the Midwest and you're like, oh, this is, this is a dying thing. But then you actually look at the numbers and you're like, wait, hold on. How many millions of people live here? How much does this grow every year? You're telling me that hundreds of thousands of people move here every single year? You're telling me that you have entire sections in counties of the city that the average income is, you know, over $90,000, not not cities, but entire yeah. counties. And yeah. all of a sudden you start looking at these markets and go, whoa, this may not be yeah. hitting the Forbes list as far as a percentage <laughs> of growth, right? right. But growth in comparison, like I bet you if you matched growth in comparison to Austin, Texas, Boise, and Kansas City, Kansas City probably wins. As far as numbers, how many people are moving around and changing, right? But because Austin, Boise, and Nashville were smaller cities, of course, if we have 100,000 people moving to Bo Boise, that's a crisis. <laughs> like right. we we don't even know what to do with all those people, right? And same with <laughs> sure. Austin, Texas. A hundred thousand right. people moving to Austin, Texas. It's literally a crisis. But right. in Kansas City, 
that may just be a norm. And it's a yeah, totally I mean, different the metro way of is, at The it. metro is pretty massive here in Kansas City. Oh, it, yeah. it really is. Yeah, I'm yeah, shocked. Every time I go there, yeah. when I go there, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, everything, I'm like, we don't even think about these places being from the West Coast. And two, same with the East Coast. And then you go there and you're like, this is massive. These yeah. are massive city with massive industries that are not going anywhere. They're not leaving. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned the, um, and not to make it a podcast about Kansas City continued, but you mentioned the kind of high end areas within these cities. And so Johnson County, Kansas, which is on Crazy. the the Kansas side of, and that's yeah. Olathe, right? And you, yep. so your wife's there, so you kind of understand that. Yep. It's like- Beautiful, <laughs> huge houses, great yeah, shopping. That's, that's actually where I'm sitting. I'm in Johnson County right now. Okay, but yeah, I love it's, Johnson it's, County. Yeah, it's considered, um, like I've heard it be called the Beverly Hills of, of Kansas, of the Midwest. But yeah. when you look at the income per capita, I'm like, it's like in the top 100 in the United yeah, States. I think shocking. it's like 80, 83. <laughs> so, and we do have investors. We, we invest with investors on both sides of the state line, Kansas City, Missouri, mm-hmm. Kansas City, and then Johnson County, which is people. Um, and these are huge, too. When you say like counties, a lot of people think, no, this is massive. This like is a million people. Yeah. Like this is not we're talking about, you know, a, a small city. You're talking about a, a place that has a million people. Now you think about a that. million on each side of the state line, really. So yeah. It's, it's, it's and you huge. think about that hundreds of thousands of people with average incomes of you know, 80,000, double the national average. And then two, you put on top of it, that's average. There's cities in Johnson County where it's over 150,000. And you start looking at the infrastructure in those areas, which mm. is gorgeous. Everything is high-end, new built. And you're all of a sudden going, this bucks any trends or anything that you even hear about. Now, of course, in Kansas City, there's bad parts, of course. Yeah, and the Kansas That's Missouri every city, though. especially can get a little, but the the general kind of structure of the city with one of the things that I love about the of Kansas City and a lot about the a lot of the Midwest markets have this, not not Austin anymore. Everything's migrating there, but Kansas City has kind of refreshed itself like every decade with new innovative companies that have become local, right? Garmin, Sprint, Garmin, yeah, Garmin, yep. um, and. Yeah, good companies, uh, tech companies, good companies. Yeah. Um, and so there's just a lot of tech jobs here. And there's also, a, you know, there was a, the first half billion dollar startup exit in Kansas City this year. Um, Backlot cars got acquired for, I think, 550 million. So the Kansas City's, there's it's not moving and shaking. It's not making the front page of Forbes, like you mentioned. But there is things happening here. And I think that's that, that's one of the cool things about some of the mid, the cities in the Midwest that are continuing to well, move forward. Too, though, there's like, maybe not a, like, a break. Like, you got to think about this. This is one of the big things that I look at these Midwest cities is another part of this is sustainability. So when you look at like Austin or Boise, that it's not sustainable. You're talking about our home prices are now equivalent to California and everybody's buying them in cash. Well, we live in uh, we live in a city in a state that is a Rocky Mountain rural state, right? It's gorgeous. There's reasons that people are just mass migrating here. But at the same time, we have one of the lower incomes in the nation because our cost of living here was so low. Like our disposable income in Idaho, uh, I don't think it is anymore, but it was one of the highest in the entire nation. So we had more Mm. restaurants per capita, everything, because disposable Mm. income was just astronomical. And everybody owned homes. We had the least amount of multifamily of any metro area because why why rent? Everybody could buy a home. You Mm. go from that 
in 15 years to basically matching home prices with California, you're talking starter homes now are, you know, we're talking 300, you're buying duplexes at 350 plus thousand dollars and they're not good. These aren't good. These are in bad areas of the town. And mm. you're looking in the nice areas and everything's over a million and you go, this isn't, this is no longer sustainable, right? Wherein sure. you got areas in the Midwest where although you have this really good area, really high paying jobs, I mean, you haven't seen anything like that. Your your ability to buy a home, your ability to live there and disposable income is still really good. So California is really migrating to Idaho because of that, but we're hitting caps and that's going to sure. stop those things. And I view Austin, Nashville as the same things. I'm like, wait, when are we going to start? This is going to start going over like tipping over, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did a little exercise um, when I was like, okay, properties are appreciating at ten percent per month, you know, in January, February, and March, and mm-hmm. and so people were asking me like, is this going to continue for a while? And I was like, well, I did it, you know, I over five years, you just multiply it by one point one over and over again, and the price of the property got like in the like ninety million, yeah. you know, in sixty months because yeah. the power of compounding yeah. is so powerful. Yeah, it, it doesn't and make so sense. That's what, you just, it's an asymptotal function, right? And, yes. and the limiting of that of that function is simply is population and income, right? It's yeah. the total income of the city. But and two, so you have a problem with, so when you look at areas like our cities where this migration's happening so fast, prices have to rise, but the builders from the last recession, so I work with a lot of developers, including the largest one in our state. They're ginormous. They're in like four states or whatnot. And he said, you got to realize during the last recession in this metro area, we had over 300 homes sitting, waiting to be sold. So they were just on their books, right? And Jeez. they were like, because they just, they knew they'd, they'd sell. This was two years ago. He said, right now we have three. By tomorrow, they'll be gone. And he goes, we're not building 300 homes again. Like it, like they're building 300 homes. They're not building 300 homes that aren't sold though. They're only Jeez. basically building to sell. So all of a sudden what that means in these metro areas, because <laughs> these developers are doing it, these prices are getting astronomical, but you look and say, okay, incomes have to rise, but how much can incomes rise to offset when there's no end in sight? We don't have backlog of houses coming up. We don't have backlogs yeah. of that coming up. So that's where all of a sudden you go, all of a sudden, migration has to start pulling back. Incomes sure. have to rise to meet today. But at right. some point, migration has to slow down. Or they're going to have to do <laughs> mass housing incentives. Or a, But the builders just aren't doing it. And they don't want to. They get paid more than they did when they were producing twice as much. And they have it's like a car, it's like a risk. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's like a... It's like the diamond trade. Like we're gonna keep supply short because yes. like we make more margin by selling one with sixty thousand margin per there versus two with twenty thousand margin. Yep, it exactly. benefits me. I work less hard, so it's, it's and way smart. less I, risk. They're like we don't. We're not support. sitting on the risk. So they're going. Why? There's zero incentive for these mass developers. And now builders to do are marking up prices during like the sales process. Yes, so they're getting every all their case. Yeah, it's oh we went and walked the, through a home. It had yeah. just just got built, just yeah. opened. We walked in. It's like a pretty home thing, right? You walk in, you're like, oh, how much? You know, how much was this home? And like, oh, this was one point six. Every home we walked into, but there's no way you can get it at that today. It had just got done, like the week before. They just stopped building it, 
and they're already telling you you'd be crazy to think if you could get at that price. And you're going, holy cow, this is... <laughs> and two, the problem with it is, though, it's not because of speculation or anything, because they're telling you you can't do that because the cost just to build it because of actual materials have gone up so much. They're saying we couldn't get it out of the ground for that much. Five mm. months later. Wow. <laughs> How, so, housing, housing crisis, my friend. But housing that's why crisis. I love your strategy. And this is exactly why I love where you're at. Because you're in an area that can absorb a lot of these things. But to your strategy allows for pullback. It allows for you to maneuver and get around. Anyways, I, I mean, dude, sorry. I, I could just talk about this stuff all day. I love no, what man, you're doing. I, mean, I think it's, it's so it's interesting. I mean, it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, income just income cannot keep up with uh, housing price. Like in San Francisco, Manhattan. Yeah, uh, I used to work in San Francisco. My salary was double, but the housing prices was were like seven times as high. Yeah, so it just doesn't it doesn't port, and so and that means yeah, that's where it, people are going to move. All of a sudden, these high growth markets when they tap out, where do you go if you can't go to Austin? Well, maybe we go up to Kansas City now. Because I got to find affordable option. We had we had a, a property that we were looking in a Midwest city, and there was somebody using it. I went and talked talked to him, said, "Oh, hey, how's it going, yo?" Uh, I said, "Why do you use it?" Because I just want to ask the customer, and they're like, "Oh, this, this, and this." I just moved here from California, and I was like, "Oh, <laughs> why? This is you know far away." And they go, well, "I can afford to live here." And so yeah. when you looked at all their options that they had, why did they choose that? And it was purely affordability. So you're tacking on long-term trends with infrastructure with a model that works to generate high cash flows. I, I love it. I think it's a great model, man. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're super happy. Our, we're you know, just getting started <laughs> with it. Yeah. But we're, you know, I think we think there's, there's opportunity for this model to work in all kinds of markets, but we wanted to start with the the real estate investing markets that we just like thought were the best out there. Yes. Uh, yeah. We just Dallas, Kansas city and Austin are just in each, each one has its pluses and minuses, you know, you can't cash flow in Austin at all, but you know, each I, we like, um, although Boise sounds pretty hot if I would have got foot maybe two years ago. Right. Yeah. It's crazy, but well, hey, man, I've already taken up you know, so much of your time, everything else. Where could people find you? Where, where should we sure. send people to learn more about you and everything, learn about what you're doing? Uh, you're the first podcast I've ever had that, um, you know, we have like student housing, people, things like that. But uh, this is totally unique, and I'm in love with it. I love what you're doing. Thanks, man. It's like out of all the strategies I heard, I've heard, honestly, in today's age, I'm like, that's one I would deploy. That's one right now that if I had to get into single family homes, this is a strategy that I would start executing on. Um, I It makes sense to me. It's logical. It's um, one that can carry forward. And two, I love the idea of scaling this and how it's broken up. It, it, it's almost like you're doing what you, you get all the benefits of uh, um, like senior living housing, but none yeah. of the big problems with it. You don't have to worry <laughs> about people dying and taking care of everything. So sure. I, I love the hybrid. Anyway, where can yeah. people go to find out about you um, yes. and learn more about you? Sure, man. Well, I appreciate the kind words. That was, um, we, yeah, I, I love it too. <laughs> and there, I, I love creative strategies in general value. And so I think what you're doing is is very very cool, and I like that you've created like such a repeatable process around identifying these you know these things that probably have less eyeballs on them. So that's very cool. Um, homeroom is at livehomeroom.com. You can kind of go on there. We have uh, 
an invest page where you can learn about our strategy. Um, and then you can email me at johnny at livehomeroom.com at any time. I check, I read all my emails and I'm, and I respond to most of them the same day. And then a couple I respond to three months later, but I do my best to get to all of them. So anyway but thanks so much for having me aj i really appreciate it man thank you for coming on everybody go check them out we'll also have that stuff in the show notes um and uh, hey maybe next time in kansas city uh look up and we'll have to meet up sound good i'd I'd love that man really really nice to talk to you aj hey you too